You're listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast, your number one source for discussions about the Vols and Lady Vols basketball programs. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Now, get ready for a new episode of Vol Basketball Fever. Hello, Vol fans, and welcome in to another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever podcast. I am Nathaniel Rutherford, joined by Gene Henley here for, uh, I guess now, Gene's the first offseason episode of the show for at least the men's side. Lay Vols, as of recording this, are still in the NCAA tournament. They'll be playing Belmont, the upset over Oregon. Uh, so it'll be an in-state matchup in Knoxville on Monday when the Lady Vols and Belmont play. So congrats to Belmont. I always like seeing the in-state schools uh, get victories, and especially when they're you know, upsets and uh, double-digit seeds taken down single-digit seeds. But Gene, I'm not even bother with the spiel about you know subscribing to the channel and where we are in podcasts and stuff like that. I'm just, I'm just going to dive right into it. I, I knew we'd be talking eventually about Tennessee getting bounced in the tournament. I just was... I know I, I I feel honestly kind of dumb, I guess, for maybe getting my hopes up. I, I don't know. I, I thought this team was different. We talked last week about, you know, winning the SEC tournament and stuff. And I, and I think, you know, maybe dumb is a harsh word, but I just feel like I had convinced myself, and I think a lot of people had listening to this podcast too, that this team was different, that, you know, winning the SEC tournament, especially you know, doing that the first time in, in 40-something years, 43 years that, okay, this team is, has actually peaked at the right time, that they're playing their best ball at the right time. They actually did something you know, in postseason that Tennessee hasn't done in forever that even some of Tennessee's best coaches haven't ever done. You, Bruce Pearl never won the SEC tournament. Uh, I, I mean, Don, I guess, I mean, Rick, I guess Ramirez did, but you, know, you look back at just decades and decades of coaches at Tennessee and none of them were able to do that. This finally happened, and you're thinking, okay, you look at the, the draw in Tennessee's NCAA bracket, and you're thinking, all right, this is a pathway to probably at least the Sweet 16. You know, you, you looked at who you match up in the first round, easy win. Obviously, that turned out to be an easy win. Second round, you're thinking, okay, Michigan or Colorado State, like that's those are teams Tennessee can beat. They match up okay with both of them. I, I remember thinking, I, don't, I didn't really want to play Michigan because of Hunter Dickinson and just the bigs that Michigan has. And well, here we are, Gene, uh, because of those bigs, especially particularly because of Hunter Dixon, who, who just at one point was just beating the ever-living daylights out of Tennessee. He finished the game with 27 points and 11 rebounds. I also had four assists, and, and he himself was uh, three of five from three. He hit half of Michigan's threes in that game. Eli Brooks finished with 23 points. Uh, you also had uh, Musa Diabate, who had 13 and six. Terrence Jones or Terrence Williams had a, a nice uh, contributions there as well with nine points and three rebounds. You also looked at point guard Devonte Jones for them in that game. I knew he'd play, but then he left early because of, of injury. He you know he didn't play at all in their first round game against Colorado State. But Gene, the the thing you said, it, it, one of the first thoughts I had after Tennessee got eliminated was stuff that you had said, maybe even last podcast, but you'd said it. I mean, multiple times throughout the year that this team. When the offense can't hit threes, that's when they struggle to find a way to win. And it happened at the worst possible time. It wasn't like Tennessee had a, a bad shooting night. They literally had their worst shooting night from three of the entire season. Two of 18. Their two made threes were the fewest made threes that Tennessee had in the game all season. Their 11.1% shooting percentage from three was also the worst shooting percentage from three in the entire season. So they had 
And first round, a phenomenal game shooting the three, uh, 14 of 24 against Longwood, two of 18, and, and quite literally the worst shooting performance from three the entire season. And it came in the round of 32 against Michigan, and Tennessee remains winless against Michigan and NCAA tournament play. I think for me, Gene, it, it's the feelings I have about this season, which I guess we can kind of get into in a minute. Yeah, I'm going to save that and, and talk about that later on the podcast. I'm going to talk about this game specifically. You can't have bad days in the NCAA tournament. You, you can't, there is no, okay, we had a bad game. We'll watch the tape and bounce back, you know, next week or, you know, next weekend or whatever, or here in three days, like you could in the regular season. You have a bad game in the NCAA tournament, you're probably out. It's it's kaputs. You're you're done. And that's what happened in Tennessee. They had a bad shooting game. And, and I thought the defense didn't play great either. I, I thought there's Michigan, you, you got to give credit to Michigan. Their their offense was able to, you know, be decisive and attacking and, you know, found weaknesses in Tennessee's defense that a lot of teams haven't been able to do this year. But I thought Tennessee's defense didn't play how they were capable of playing. Uh, they played really well for like a four-minute stretch in the second half where I thought Tennessee was, okay, they may be starting to hopefully close out this game. And then Michigan responded with like an 8-0 run or something like that. I can't remember what the run was, but responded and retook the lead, and then it just felt over from there. Tennessee could not hit a shot. Their offense went stagnant, and again, credit to Michigan's defense. Their defense played really good uh, for a lot of the game. They, they took Tennessee – really, they took Santiago Vescovi out of his his element for sure. He, he did not look comfortable out there at all. Uh, he could not get any space at all. And I saw people complaining about, you know, was it too physical on certain stuff? I don't think so. I think there's some there's some foul calls that could have been made that weren't, but I genuinely think that, you know, the officiating wasn't awful in the game. I, I saw some people disagree with that, and I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think the officiating – officiating may not have helped Tennessee, I guess, but Tennessee really didn't help themselves. Uh, it was Tennessee's fault they lost this game. We have a lot to cover, Gene. Uh, there's obviously the Rick Barnes discussion people have been having about, you know, Rick Barnes in March. But I'm looking at this game as – it was just a bad game for Tennessee and you can't have bad games in March. And it just is what it is. It doesn't mean this team sucked. It doesn't mean this, this season necessarily was a massive disappointment because that's another thing you have talked about where you don't put, there's a large emphasis on March, but I don't think you can distill down the entire season to what happens in the NCAA tournament because it's such a crap shoot. And we've seen that. And we've talked about that on the show. But it, it, it was severely disappointing for the game and that season to end the way it did on Saturday. And it just it just leaves such a bitter taste in, I think, everyone's mouths and, and the players and the fans and everyone involved with, you know, being a fan, being in, in that program. I think it just leaves such a, a gut punch. Like, I, I don't I don't know anyone who was. I don't know anyone who, who was. I don't know. I saw people angry. I saw people sad, but most, most of which is like a confusing confusion. Like I'm not really sure how to react kind of feeling because it just didn't feel like it should have ended this way for this team, especially, but maybe it's maybe again, maybe it should have, because as we said, you live by the three, you die by the three and Tennessee gene, uh, certainly died by the three. I think it's Michigan. Right. Well, uh, first off, I wanted to kind of give you your time to, um, Thank you. Kind of get it off your chest, um, and that, I think I'm here for you in that regard. In, in terms of, uh, secondly, shout out to Devonte Jones who played his first two years of high school um, at Tyner in Chattanooga. Um, really good kid. He was displaced Chattanooga because of uh, Katrina. Spent mm-hmm. two years in Chattanooga. Then went back to New Orleans. Played at Coastal Carolina. 
Um, and obviously he's now at Michigan. Um, hated he didn't really get a chance to do anything yet last night because of whatever. He, I think there was, he had a concussion going into the game and then uh, wasn't able to play an awful lot. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and I, I have mentioned a lot of times this year, I mean, can they generate offense when they're not hitting shots? And uh, it would be very easy for me to point to the two of 18 and, and say, well, you know, they didn't. Uh, but, if, I mean, if you look, I mean, Tennessee hit shots. They just weren't threes. Uh, I mean, they scored almost 70 points, not hitting threes. Like, they were generating offense. Defense would hurt them. I think uh, Michigan shot like 56% from the field in the second half. If you get performances like Dickerson, uh, Dickinson and um, uh, Eli, number 55, uh, Brooks, mm-hmm. you get performances from guys like that. I mean, you know, you miss out, you miss a couple offensive rebounding opportunities that really kind of hurt you. Uh, and it, it all just kind of comes together. And, and, like, yeah, I think the bigger issue was the fact that they just didn't really have an answer for uh, Dickerson. And he was, I mean, he was so effective, I mean, all game long. Uh, I thought Euros played well at, at moments, but everybody else that they have is either too young. I mean, the Tennessee has either too young or just too light. And um, that's why you have to have, I mean, that's probably finding somebody else would have in hindsight been a pretty decent idea. Even if that guy was like a six, eight, you know who they needed was EJ and a sticky guy like that. Like just a guy who can throw a body at him and, you know, maybe neutralize. Huntley Hatfield is young. He's gear away. Adu, gear away. Fulkerson, too light. Um, and so it, it, you start running out of options, and you're trying different things to kind of slow down what they do, and they just then, you know, the, you, know you take him away, and then here comes Brooks. I don't remember exactly what Brooks had in the second half, but I felt like it was a lot. And, uh, yeah, like it's just, you know, it, you take away their, you know, Tennessee's most, uh, you know, dynamic outside threat. And, you know, Chandler, you know, played his tail off in that game, and you can see it afterwards in terms of the emotion. Uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, they they lost that game because they didn't guard the second half. Yeah. Not like you're accustomed to that program guarding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, that's, that has more to do with the loss as opposed to any sort of offensive woes. Two for 18, it's not going to win you a lot of games from three, but you also scored 70 points. So I'm not necessarily going to point specifically to that reason. Um, over down from three in the second half, and you still were pretty effective otherwise. I can't remember exactly what you shot, but I'm pretty sure you made like 60% from two in the second half. So, like, you were making shots, they just weren't three. Maybe a three or two would have helped in that regard, but you were manufacturing offense, and I think that's important. Um so, yeah, like, I think it's more the defensive part. It, it, that's the part that is, I would imagine, is more disappointing because that had been your calling card all year. Like, I think everybody kind of felt like you could win games. Uh, you can win games when, you know, you scored. Usually Tennessee scores 68 points. They're not losing because of the defense. I think that's the part that's more surprising to me is they gave up 75. Like I, I would, I would, I would expect Tennessee losing a game like sixty-three to fifty-seven or something along those lines, not seventy-four sixty-eight. When you tell me that they shoot two eighteen to three, just because I mean the way that they guard, and you you expect that to be you know an advantage, and it just wasn't last night. 
I think the way my mind works, Gene, is I obviously last night or we're recording this on Sunday night. So Saturday night, I, I was, you know, I, I was I was upset. Like I was a weird again, I mentioned earlier, like a weird combination of I think a lot of fans are like sad, mad and just kind of like, you know, not really sure how to I just really had to react to it. So I, I just kind of let that simmer, went to sleep on it and woke up, you know, still kind of feeling the way it was. My brain tries to, as I've gotten older, tries to dwell less on things and tries to go more into how can I fix it to fix it mode, which I know you can't always do that with 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 things, and it's not how things always work in life. But that that's blood over in my fandom of, you know, I try not to dwell on you know what happened, whether good or bad. Like I try to I, I try to move on to the next things. So, okay, how how can things get better to make sure this bad thing doesn't happen again, or how can things continue? on this stretch so these the good things that have been happening do continue to happen and i think you kind of mentioned it i mean we talk about dickinson having the dominance you talk about eli brooks having what he did and you talked made a good point that you either had basically the big assistants you had were either well too old i guess necessarily for, for fulkerson too young or they weren't they're just not they're not gifted enough or again they're too young and, and the ones that are younger have more athletic talent and gifts but they aren't you know grizzled enough and better enough i think the, the right mix of that of those two types of things was olivia camaw but unfortunately you know he's out and 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 you know was out from the south carolina game i think having him in that game i think if he was in that game tennessee wins maybe not but i think tennessee has a better chance of winning if cam was and i think that, that's something that i had kind of forgotten until this morning that t- tennessee still technically had i mean they've been playing with him without him for a month or longer but you were down a starter you know for that game and now starter for, you know, again, a large chunk of the season. But I wonder how differently things would have gone if you had Camois in there um, and was able to play. Again, we will never know. Just like we'll never know when Tennessee get bounced early in the second round in 2018 with when Kyle Alexander was out and little Chicago was able to have, get a lot of backdoor cuts and run a, a, you know, do better on offense than I think people expected because of not having a rim protector. And, and Camois isn't a rim protector necessarily, but he, well, I mean, kind of. I mean, he, he did a really good job of, of guarding the paint. So I think, you know, next year, looking ahead to next season, I feel like this podcast is going to bounce back and forth between what just happened and looking ahead to next year, at least in my mind it will. Next, you have Kama back. You have Brandon Huntley. Well, you likely will have Brandon Huntley, Hadfield, Jonas Adu, and Urosh back next year. Fulkerson's only big. That's that's for sure gone. You could have Brandon Huntley, Hatfield decide to maybe try to do something in, in the pro leagues or, you know, or whatever g league or overseas um you could have him transfer i don't i don't think adu transfers because i think he saw his playing time go up and i think you know he sees a future here or is not going to transfer on his own volition I, I think the only way he would do it is if he was asked to but i don't think he'll be asked to because i think barnes does and, and they, so the staff they do like what they have in him game again he's if he's healthy he's he's starting next year you need to go get either an instant impact, like actual instant impact freshman who like a Jabari Smith type, which again, easier said than done uh, for sure. But a guy who, who, you know, isn't like a, a more, more like a, a Jabari Smith and less like a Huntley Hatfield or Adu who, who have the skill set to come out and, you know, be contributors day one for you um, and can play 20, 25 minutes day one for you. Again, I know it's much easier said than done. Jabari Smith's don't just grow on trees. That kid is a ridiculous talent. But we'll get into in a second. There, there is a, a power forward in the twenty-two class who Tennessee, um, I think, is targeting now and is an interesting play. But 
I think it's through the transfer portal. You have you have to go address your need in the post and the transfer portal. I, I, you don't need a dominant big man like Hunter Dickinson can be. Like you don't need that. You don't need a, a Walker Kessler, for example. You don't you don't need to like have to go get like the best big man on the market. But you need someone who is capable of of I think being productive. We, we've talked about how guard heavy. Uh, things are. And Tennessee has really good guards. They're going to have really good guards again next year. Kenny Chandler is gone, but you're going to have, well, probably Vescovy. I, I kind of wonder if he's going to go and test the waters uh, overseas, especially because of, you know, him being an international player. If he goes and decides, hey, you know, I'm going to go back closer to home. And, you know, I've, I've been in college for a long time. I don't think he's an NBA player, but I think he's a guy who could go make a lot of money um, back back overseas, back closer to where he's from. So I'm I'm kind of curious and, and see if he comes back next year or not. Even if he doesn't, you have BJ Edwards coming in. You have Sakai Ziegler. You have probably Josiah Jordan James. I don't I don't see him leaving. Um, he I guess he could, but I don't see it happening. Um, but you have that core. You, you probably have Justin Powell coming back. Victor Bailey is an interesting one to talk about. We have a lot of discussions I have here in the next couple weeks, Gene, about <laughs> the roster makeup and what it could look like. But I think the biggest need for next year is 100% going to be you need to get a transfer big. I think like, I, I don't know that. I don't know that there's a bigger need on the roster than getting a, a true big man who can do something uh, and be a, if nothing else, be a deterrent defensively to the other big man you're going to play. Since he didn't have that whole lot, Urush could do it at times, but I, there was a lot of times when Folky would get matched up my guys. I thought that's not a good matchup for Tennessee. Uh, Camwad, you know, did a good job of holding his own, but he's, you know, he's six, eight. He's, he's not short by stretch of the imagination, but if you can get someone who's a, a 6'10", 6'11", just enforcer type, who is more aggressive and honestly smarter, who has a better basketball IQ than Arosh, because I, I love Arosh's effort, but man, his sometimes his reaction time and his basketball IQ just seem incredibly low at, at times. Again, he's not been playing basketball like all his life. I think he's one of the guys that had just you know, kind of started late playing basketball, but you can tell it sometimes, especially in crunch moments where he he gets frustrated and uh, makes just some just bad decisions on the court. Tennessee needs someone who can be, if, if again, if nothing else, an enforcer who makes more consistently good decisions as a deterrent to other big men and who can protect the rim and all these different things. And again, Adu can develop into that, but I'm not sure he's going to be that as a sophomore next year. He's ahead of schedule in terms of if you're comparing him to Kyle Alexander, which I think a lot of people have, and I, I think I did at some point on the podcast too, he's ahead of where Kyle Alexander was as a freshman. Um, but that's still not like, you know, it's still not a guy as a sophomore you want to rely on to be playing 25, 30 minutes in a game. So I guess my, my, my thing, Gene, is this game really in particular highlighted to me, and there were a couple other times this year that it highlighted it to me too, but this game in particular highlighted that I think Tennessee – I don't think you need a dominant big man because again, we're not playing in the, in the eighties and nineties, you know, the game is, has changed to be a lot more guard oriented, but if you need, you need a, a big man who can run the floor. You can need a big man who can be a productive player on both sides of the court. I, I think, I mean, again, at bare minimum, I think you need an enforcer defensor, a defendant, I guess, defender as the five, but I think Tennessee, that's, that's what they have the key in on. They have to go find a legitimate sec caliber, starting five or a starting, I guess, center, whatever you want to call it uh, for next year, because I think that's, that's kind of the biggest key that's missing. That was missing from this team in particular, but I think that it will be missing from next year's team too, if they don't address it. 
So I think I talked about this at the beginning of, I don't know, probably in the summer or somewhere along that line. Um, I think that there's an, an issue going forward as far as Tennessee and Biggs because the question at some point has to be asked, and look, this isn't about like development of Biggs. I'm not here to do that. But look around at some of the guys that you mentioned. Uh, look at Jabari Smith. Could you imagine Jabari Smith playing the way he played at Auburn in Knoxville? I can't. Um, I I don't I don't see a scenario where they where like he's given the the freedom and the leeway to be that player in Knoxville. Maybe I'm wrong, but a lot of evidence suggests that I I, that I may not be wrong there. So because like the system that is run and that's a big part of this. Like that's like all the, the discussions that we've had, it, it's more watching the system that Tennessee runs. And it's a system where you're going to throw the ball in the paint and guys are going to try to make plays or, or or whatever. So, I mean, we can go back We can go back to Kerry Blackshear if we want to. Mm. The way that Kerry Blackshear played was not – it may have worked out. And, look, I think the kid made a bad decision not going to Tennessee. I do. Uh, but I also don't think that there – I don't know if he uh, – there's probably some fear that he was not going to be afforded the liberties to be as – you know, to be a guy out on the floor, on the on the perimeter, you know, ball handling and doing all those sorts of things. Um you know, look at again. I brought. I mean, Brandon Huntley Hatfield. Watched that kid play in the summer. Uh, that's a kid that Tennessee mainly got because of the Bobby Mays connection. I'm not suggesting anything there. I'm saying that played a major factor in them getting him, especially considering he reclassified and came a year early. Because we can't forget that Brandon Huntley Hatfield should be a senior in high school right now. As we as we look at all of this stuff that's going on with some of the kids. That's that's a kid who should be a senior in high school who did have some decent moments over the course of a season that should have been, uh, that should have been his senior year of high school. Then you've got Adu, who you obviously you felt pretty comf- you know, confident you were going to get because of the connection with the assistant coach that you brought from Marquette. Um, so, like, if you just look, I mean, I know there was a time when Jabari Smith was there was a flirtation between Tennessee and Jabari Smith. Uh, people felt maybe that was the case with Kessler to an extent. I, I feel like there's just I don't know what's out there, what's going on, um, but like I, I think that because of like the connections in the AAU communities, then I'm mean, like the question is going to be. If people are talking to Brandon Huntley Hatfield and asking what's his experience been like in Knoxville, what's his answer? Because that'll determine if you can get guys. Um, because that's a kid who a lot of people felt was a completely different player than the version that we saw in Knoxville this season, hmm. and you know myself included. And if I'm not, I mean, just being honest, I, that, that's not the player I saw, uh, and. Now, that may not be the best version. Maybe the, the player we saw in Knoxville is actually the best college version of that kid. 
I just never saw a kid who was just going to pretty much kind of run block to block, run a foul line extended, catch the ball at the top of the key, hand the ball off to a guard and set a screen and roll. I just never thought that was his style of play. And if he's back next year, then he's comfortable with it. If he's in the portal, then he wasn't comfortable with it. He thinks he's something different. I'm not, I can't speak on that. Because uh, I don't know. I'm not trying to like I have any knowledge of it, but that will figure you know, that will that will figure itself out here in the upcoming days and weeks. Uh, so I think your point is true. Tennessee does need to get that guy. They do need to get some guy, you know, and maybe they just need to develop, you know, Adu a little bit more to where maybe he's that sort of guy. I just wonder if they actually have to go get them, um, can they? Because it's hard. Again, I just think it's kind of hard to get kids nowadays uh, in the SEC specifically to buy into getting, you know, getting a bunch of touches in the paint. This is the Big Ten, a league that's full of bigs. I mean, I just watched one. I just watched yeah. one of the biggest ones play on Friday, and then I saw another one play Saturday, and Purdue's got one bigger than both of those guys. Um, if that's the case, then so be it. But those kids are growing up playing that style of play, and there's probably no other way. Like, the, how are you going? I mean, the question is, how are you going to get the six nine, six ten versatile guy um, that can do a lot of things? Because I wonder, does Brandon Huntley Hatfield see himself more as the next incarnation of Grant Williams, Olivier Conway, or does he see himself as more of a Jabari Smith? Hmm. Because it, it almost suggests, and look, there's freedoms that are allowed in AAU that are not allowed in college. That's just the way it goes. I would not be stunned, though, if he kind of fancies himself as that, as the all as you know Jabari Smith, the catch you know the catch and shoot guy who can do all these different sorts of things on the court. The guy he was at IMG, and maybe not so much the guy that we saw in Knoxville. So I just think it's going to be something to watch. Uh, something to see. I mean, we've not we've not mentioned Tamba, who yeah. I think is yeah. such a developmental prospect. He is the sort of kid who would come in and be like your big post presence. But now, like, what are you going to do with a guy like Adu? Because you could develop him to be a more perimeter sort of option. Uh, because he does he can cover so much space defensively. My God, he can cover up so much space. He can cover up a lot of things defensively. He's elite. They're not just good. He's elite defensively. Um, and you don't get that guy very often. But, you know, like when you're just looking at what the interior situation looks like, it it, it probably lends itself more questions, at least more questions than answers at this moment. Would this be a case, we talked last week, you know, or- I guess you know, while we were in the middle of recording last week, Tennessee had the, the news come out of um, Mike Schwartz heading to ECU. Would this be a case of of whatever next assistant coach Rick Barnes brings in that it's a, a like a, a big man specialist? I guess like a guy who is has coached big men and has you know has a good um, I don't I don't know how you know who's available or whatever not but, but whoever brings in like a guy who has a pedigree of coaching big men because I, I I think that would be. Yeah, that that could be a way to remedy it, remedy it some because you're right. Like the points you've made, this isn't the first time you've said it on the podcast. The points you made are, are spot on. You know, Rick Barnes doesn't have a exactly a 
stellar track record of, of big men, especially in the last like decade. Like you can point to some guys he had at Texas for sure, but at Tennessee, I mean, he's developed guys. Like you said, you can point to some of the development of those players, but it's also, again, the style they play. I think you're right. Would, would, you know, both Paolo Banchero and, or Bancaro, I guess, and Jabari Smith were, were, you know, both heavily interested in Tennessee for a while um, in the recruiting process. But again, I don't know that either of those guys would have played the same way or, as you said, like had the same success maybe this year as they did at their respective schools at, at Duke and Auburn. Maybe they would have. I mean, we'll never know, clearly. But Barnes hasn't had a a big man get drafted into the NBA, you can point to, because Grant Williams was a big man at Tennessee, but he's a guard basically in the NBA. So you can't point to him. Kyle Alexander's having a, you know, he's not doing bad over overseas and kind of bouncing around in the G League and Summer League and stuff in the NBA. But again, that's not like a, it's not a good selling point to a, a five-star center coming out of high school or five-star power forward coming out of high school. Um, so, but, but my point is, you know, is that, should that be kind of the area that Rick Barnes addresses for, his next assistant coach. Cause we talked last week about, you know, it should it be a, a, I guess a veteran guy or maybe a younger guy or, or whatever. But I, I think that could that remedy anything? Is that, could that help any of, of the recruiting process? If, if Barnes goes out and gets somebody who has a track record with, you know, big men and maybe even the sec or just in general, just in college basketball. Uh, perhaps. Um, but I think what's interesting is I'm going to name drop a name here that I think is going to be in play. Frank hates. Uh, I think that's a guy that's going to be heavily in play for that opening there. Uh, I mean, I don't think he'll get a – I mean, he may get a head coaching job, in which case, you know, we can screw up this out of the podcast. But I think that he's a name that of somebody that will be heavily in play for that assistant job. Um, that gives you a veteran, you know, a veteran guy on the bench. Uh, has been successful, obviously. Has had some issues in some places. Uh, I'm pretty sure Tulsa and Missouri, <laughs> but uh, he's also a guy who kind of understands and is pretty good at his at, at coaching. Um, now I don't know necessarily what his uh, I don't know what his specialty is as an assistant, mm-hmm. but he does offer a veteran voice um, on the bench. Uh, I'm sorry, I said Missouri. It was actually, I think, Miami that got in trouble. But regardless. Uh, it's Miami and Missouri. Yeah, he got, yeah he, okay. Uh, Tulsa was clean. I'm sorry. Tulsa's where he just left. So, um, so I, I think that you're just looking at a case where I, I don't think that development is the answer. Like, I mean, if you watched the guys individually on that team played well, uh, Euros played well this season. From you know, you look at the first two years and look at this year. Like Euros played well, Olivier played well. Uh, you know, Huntley Hatfield became you know a, you know a starter and had some nice moments. Adu had some nice moments. I, I just think that you're like this. I, I'm just not sure the system is conducive to having guys who are going to go out there and have the sorts of Jabari Smith or, you know, or, or, or Bancaro sort of performances and efforts. I just don't think the the system is conducive to that. And, like, don't throw Grant Williams at me who scored yep. probably 75 to 80% of his points in the paint. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, you know, and also you're talking about Grant who, you know, is a special player. Like, that's 
You know, like I understand what he is in the NBA. He's no star. He's you know, he's a solid six six role player and he does his job. And I think he was like either leading the league in three point percentage or he was certainly up there. Um but I don't think I don't know if just going and getting a guy who can develop it is the answer. I, I just I, I just I, I don't know because again, at the end of the day, the problem you know the problem with last night was the fact they didn't guard the second half. It, it wasn't those other things. Euros played decent. Uh, Fulkerson, eh. uh, you know the other guys, yeah. You know, and, and, like, they just weren't as good uh, as a seven-foot-one, you know, all-American caliber player plays in, you know, we could argue, look, everybody can argue the SEC is the best conference. The Big Ten got nine teams in, and there's still plenty of those nine teams left. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, I, I just, I'm not, I can't do the thing where, uh I just don't know if the system is conducive to Tennessee getting the sorts of players to make them look like an Auburn or make them look like a whatever. Like, you give Adu a year of experience, he can probably guard a guy like Dickerson a little bit better. I mean, like, they're, you know, they're, they're most athletic bigs were babies uh, this year. Hmm. I think that's the issue. I mean, and, you know, like, Euros battled because Euros is a battler. That's who he is. And and, I, and I've got a I've got a ton of respect for that. Uh, Fulkerson is going to fight. I just don't. I mean, I just think that he is who he is, and he's always kind of been who he was as a player. And then you've got let's say you've got these two pretty elite, athletically, you know, talented guys, but they haven't seen a lot. You're, I mean, you are talking about a guy in Dickinson that is not. I mean, he's a sophomore, but. That's a pretty talented player who's been through a little bit more than these freshmen who didn't even really play till second semester of this year. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's necessarily time to you know pretty much just scrap everything. I just think that a year of development would help those two guys, and I guess figure out what you we can get, uh, what you can find in the portal, or you know maybe a, a former LSU guy you know decides to take his talents to, uh, to Knoxville then so be it. But, um, I mean, like I said, I mean, the portal is going to be chock full of players because coaches coaching, you know, this coaching cycle is actually it's weird. The coaching cycle has actually gone relatively fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. maybe, I mean, it's, it's stunning that there's only two jobs available and South Carolina could be filled. I, I'd imagine South Carolina's filled in the next 48 to 72 hours. Uh, you know, you get a then everything else now starts to trickle down. Uh, Seton Hall is, you know, they can't hire their new coach for a couple weeks because he's currently coaching the Cinderella St. Peter's. Uh, <laughs> you can't, you know, they can't because you know obviously Seton Hall's coach took uh, Maryland, um, and, and like so, you're not going to have a ton of opportunities for you know for new opportunities. So like I mean, so like a, a vast majority of the portal is what it is. Um, you know, Chattanooga's coach may get South Carolina. What happens with that roster? I would look. Is there anybody on South Carolina? It looks like there may be six eight, six nine, athletic, and you know, willing to be a role player in college mostly, because that's you know largely what Tennessee's post players are are just kind of glorified role players on good teams. Before anybody throws Fulkerson at me on good teams, 
like the sorts of teams that you want to have that you think you have when you're ranked number five in the country. That's good, not 17 and 13 or whatever they were two seasons ago. Um, you know, I mean, check you know, check that out. Whenever South Carolina makes this hire, check that out. Missouri about to get a new coach. Check that out. Like just because you never know. Everybody's seeing what these guys are at their current school. That does not mean that's what they're going to be at their next school. There's a lot of guys who look who look very different yeah. uh, in other systems, and so I mean, like look back back. That's a double-edged sword, and it could affect, you know, Tennessee, too. If a guy, like, you know, if Huntley Hatfield is a different player than what we, you know, than what we've seen, and he goes somewhere else, and all of a sudden he becomes that player, then that hurts. Yep. That that actually speaks to the sort of, you know, quote-unquote system that's there. That's not saying you change the system. It's just, you got, again, you have to find the right players that fit your system. Um but in terms of, like I said, in terms of, at the end of the day, um, Tennessee had uh, had two babies out there that were trying to guard uh, a pretty elite um, All-American caliber player. They just didn't quite get it done. And then had a bruiser who just couldn't quite get it done either. So, um, like, they'll, they'll be okay next year. Like, we'll see what happens with Frank Hayes. I, I've, again, I, I, be- I have reason to believe that he's going to be the guy uh, quite possibly that replaces um, Schwartz. Uh, and if he is, you know, good for him. And we'll see what qualities he brings. If he's got any players that maybe want to hop in the portal from Tulsa, check Tulsa out. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is like the portal is going to be packed. Like, but the guys that come in have to be, have to understand they're not going to be, at least in theory, they're not going to be impact guys because this is not a system that provides impact sort of, you know, an impact, a sort of impactful uh, addition in terms of recruiting. Like you're not going to get those guys that way. It could, it could work out that way, but, but largely a school like Tennessee is not going to get those guys. Like they're, those guys are going to go elsewhere because if you're transferring, it's because you're not happy with the system you're playing. And, you're not going to watch anything that Tennessee did if you are a big and say, oh, okay, yeah, this is where I want to be. Um, and whether that's fair or foul, I can't speak on that, but that's just kind of how it is. Before we, Before we talk about another big one, I'm going to talk about your Frank Haith comment because that, that would be interesting. And it would make sense. Like you said, he just resigned from Tulsa. Um, he's been – he actually – has coached under Rick Barnes as an assistant before back in the early 2000s. He was an assistant at Texas before he left to get the head coaching job at Miami. So he, you know, he and Barnes have a relationship. He's uh, coached at Texas A&M a couple of times as an assistant back in the nineties. And then again, t- coach at Texas in the early 2000s. So he, he was all around Texas. Barnes knew about him. He's coached in the S well in the S yeah, in the SEC. He was, he was Missouri's head coach when they first came over um, to the SEC. So he's been in the SEC, uh, that would be interesting. And I, I've been looking at different stuff on him because I was curious, like you said, I'm not entirely sure uh, like what his specialty is or whatever, but he, he was credited um, as kind of one of the lead recruiters for guys like uh, Bradley Buckman and LaMarcus Aldridge, who are two, who are big men um, at Texas. Also credited as Daniel Gibson, who was not a big man. So I, yeah, again, I'm not entirely sure, you know, 
what that means or if that means anything at all. So I, I think, you know, I don't know if he's would be coaching the, the, the post or whatever, or would be like the, you know, to take over the associate head coaching role, like that Schwartz had, I'm not sure, but that's interesting, Gene. I think Haith is, um, would make sense. Like you said, he's got some <laughs> interesting past, but it seems like it's been stuff that hasn't happened at least in a decade at this point or, or, or so. And again, Tulsa doesn't appear to have had anything happen while he was there. Um, just stepped down because, you know, took me the one NCAA tournament appearance. It looks like they might, might've been able to go the year COVID happened. Uh, they were, I think tied for first in their, in the AAC that year. Uh, but of course tournament didn't happen. So it didn't matter. Um, I don't, I don't remember what, what the tournament for that. I guess their tournament probably didn't start at that point yet, but anyway, um, that'd be interesting. So I'll, I'll be curious to see kind of how that, how that goes. Uh, before we get to the big man, I want to talk about, uh, you've got Tennessee shot poorly, Wisconsin today, Gene, just, just now as we're recording this loss to Iowa state, Iowa State, by the way, from zero to hero. I mean, they they won, I think, what, two, three games total last season, and now they're on to the Sweet 16. Um, but Wisconsin went two of 23 from three. They shot 8% from three, Gene. So it could actually have been worse for Tennessee. They could have shot 8% instead of 11%. Uh, yeah, it, it hurt. Bad. It did kind of hurt them to not have uh, one of the guys who was in play for National Player of the Year, mm-hmm. uh, Johnny Davis. Um not having him for uh, a portion of that game. I don't know exactly. Uh, I'm not exactly. He wasn't healthy. Right. Uh, I don't remember exactly how long he was out, but um, him not him not being 100% really hurt. But, I mean, look, two for whatever, 24, it's, you're not going to win a lot of games that way. Um, and the, yeah, and the final score is like I, a, a five-point yeah. margin. So if you make a couple of those threes you missed, then you win that game. Yeah, like I respect that Tennessee, again, only shot, what, six, you know, 16 or 18? 18, 18, because mm-hmm. there were so many times this year that that number was in the 30s and 40s. And they could have easily chucked up about 30 in that game. But, I mean, look, that, look Michigan – did a good job of basically saying your your post play if if you want to if you want to play in the post your post players aren't good enough. I'm sorry if you uh, I'm sorry if we're going to take away your guards because we don't think your posts are good enough, and that's sobering. Yeah. Like that you're going to that you're in a year. I mean you're just at a at a time where in this league. Those guys don't. They may not want to play that way. Like it's real easy to say, "Look, man, you're seven foot one, Kofi Coburn. You're seven feet, and you are built like a god at seven feet. Like seven one. Look, hey, yeah, we we got a place. We got you know, we got a you know, south the seven three kid that plays at Purdue. Yeah, like we. I mean, it's very easy when you're that tall, but when you're a six ten guy in AAU, you're not playing that way. So therefore, in your mind, you've played your whole life being this guy out in the perimeter. Again, look at the. I mean, eight. Look, Adu. I saw his highlights. It was jacking threes left and right. Now Tennessee's done a good job of getting that kid to kind of buy in, from what I've seen so far. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I mean, like Michigan had a good system. They had, I mean, they had a good plan in place. We're going to take away your guards. We're going to take away twenty-five because you know we understand he's a great shooter, but he, we don't think he can get bias. He's a great shooter, but we don't think he can put the ball in the deck and get bias. Number thirty, yeah, number thirty. That kid's coming on as a shooter, but he ain't gonna get. He ain't gonna attack the basket. 
He's getting to the mid-range. We're going to get up in your guards, and we're going to make your guards – I mean, we're going to make them put the ball on the floor. Obviously, Kennedy Chandler, that's just oh, – that, that feeds right in his hands. Yep. And, he was, yep. and obviously, he was great yesterday. But nobody else was. Nobody else really came. I mean, Josiah was there early. Uh, Vescovy did not get there. Um, and, like, every single time Kenny Chandler drove, they basically, you know, if we want to get down into the weeds of basketball, nerd, you know, nerdology, they basically said, okay, when Chandler drives, we're going to take away. We're not going to let – we'll let him get to the basket, but we're not going to let him kick it out to Vescovy for a three. Or Josiah Jordan-James for a three. Because we don't want those two guys to get going. Because if one of those, they start seeing threes fall, you know, watch out. So that's why, like, you know, Chandler had a lot of, you know, drive to the basket. Because that's what was available. They're like, we're going to take away their threes, and they're gonna we're going to make them beat us from two. And, like, that's... Look, is that the game plan? Is that is that what you do? I, I don't know, but look, I know it worked yesterday, um, and it's unfortunate um, because I think everything that was said is true. Uh, as as we always try to move on to the next thing, everything that was said about this team throughout the course of the season and entering the postseason was true. This team was national championship good. But they were also first weekend bad, and it was all and it all hinged on their ability to hit shots. Um, and last night they didn't, and I, I think that's the biggest disappointment. Was because I know everybody's going to take this, you know, whatever the Barnes stuff is, um, and. Look, people that want to kind of just, you know, smack the pinata without, you know, without a, bl- a blindfold on, if they want to do that, sure, so be it. Um, that's your freedom. That's your right. I just feel like there's just so much more that we can – there's so many different ways we can look at. We can break down those things. But everybody wants to do a totality thing. Well, he's got a losing record in March and um, – and that's fine if you want to go that route. That's your prerogative. I just feel like there's so many better ways to discuss it. Um, Got to hit shots. And, like, they weren't too tight to hit shots early in the games. So it wasn't like the, uh, somebody could say, well, he had them too tight coming in because, look, I saw the, I, you know, the first few minutes of the game, Josiah was in everything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like they were like that was that first half was a pretty good back and forth affair early on. They just couldn't hit shots in the second half. I mean, if you want to blame adjustments or whatever, so be it. But look, man, they shot 60 percent from twos like it can't. Everything can't be. Well, we didn't make the right adjustments. It's they made shots in the second half and Tennessee didn't. And it's, sometimes it's just as simple as that. Yeah, and like I said, top of the show, like it just was a bad time to have your worst shooting game of the year. Like it just from three at least, like it just was. Like there's, there's, but like you said, they like you said they didn't shoot horribly from two either. It just was a. I think you're spot on with your analysis. I, I would want to go back and watch the film to see it too, but I, that seems right from letting Kennedy or Sakai both like drive the lane and not allow them to dish it back out to. 
Josiah or Santi for threes. Like that that tracks in my my head from what I remember watching the game that they did not allow that to happen. And also to your to your point, and it's I mean supports things you've said all season. Looking at stats from the whole year, Tennessee this this season eight times had a game where they they shot twenty five percent or worse from three, and they only won two of them. And one of those was against Colorado on the road where you had Kenny Chandler take over in that game and had his, you know, that was kind of his, almost like his breakout performance where he kind of put things together and, you know, had a, had a really good game against a, a quality opponent. Uh, and that was on the road. And the other one was against Vanderbilt on the road where you won 68-60 and shot 29 free throws in that game. It went 25 to 29 from the free throw line. So that helped, you know, buoy you there because you didn't shoot well from two in that game. And you shot pretty well for, actually you shot really well from two against Colorado because, again, that was a lot of Kennedy Chandler doing that. That Tennessee in, in that game was 25% from three against Colorado but finished with uh, forty almost 48% overall from the field goal range. So, again, that shows that you shot well from two in that game. But against Vanderbilt, you shot 22% from three and 34% from the floor overall. So you did not shoot well anywhere in that game except for the free throw line, which really won that game for Tennessee. Because Michigan, again, 11% from three but 42% overall. So that, again – Highlights that Tennessee shot better from two, but again, two Tennessee finished year two and six when they shot twenty five percent or worse from three, and six of their eight losses came when they had again twenty five percent or worse from shooting. So you, you played uh, live by the three, die by the three, and just what you said and kind of what I said earlier too. Just for the most part, that was it. The only time Tennessee shot really well from three and lost this year uh, was the Kentucky game, where you know in Lexington where. Kentucky trounced them. Otherwise, even the, the other the other one of the losses that was not in the 25% was close. It was Texas, and Tennessee shot 28% from that one. So, again, seven of Tennessee's eight losses happened where they shot under 30% from three this season. And, you know, that I mean, that's going to track for a lot of teams, but that's just as such a ridiculously high percentage of Tennessee's losses that it, it feeds into exactly what you said, Gene. Like teams, when teams had success is when they had the ability to make Tennessee, you know, try to do something inside and couldn't and they could take away an element and make Tennessee one dimensional. And it, it mostly worked against that mostly was what happened against Michigan too. Um, before we get to the Rick Barnes thing, because that's, that's what I want to end the podcast on. I, I want to mention as I've teased it here for a couple of times now, the big, the kind of big man, I guess, quote unquote, that Tennessee is, is, you know, involved with right now. And that's Julian Phillips, who is a five-star in the 2022 class who just recently decommitted from LSU. Actually, he didn't just decommit. He was like, he had signed early and everything. He, he got out of his letter intent. He got the release from LSU because we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week, Gene, much at all, but uh, there's been a lot of coaching changes in the SEC. Uh, the biggest one being Will Wade being fired at LSU because of level one, a bunch of level one uh, infractions amidst the, one of the, the investigation into LSU's program. There, I think what five level one uh, infractions that they, they found for him. So, he was canned, and now LSU's had, I think, all of their recruiting, most if not all of their recruiting class, uh, asked for releases or decommit or whatever. And Julian Phillips was one of them. Tennessee was a was a pretty pretty high level player for him before he committed to LSU, and now uh, before we record this, Gene, I, I saw that uh, Rob Lewis of AllQuest mentioned without without giving away too much because I think it was probably behind a paywall without giving away too much, basically saying that Tennessee is going to be involved again uh, with Julian Phillips, who's a 6'8", 200-pound player, a five-star, top 20 overall prospect on two or seven, and then the composite there too. Uh, number three, number two power forward in the country, depending on where you're looking at, plays in uh, Missouri. It's from Branson, Missouri, and plays for Lincoln Academy over there. 
I think, you know, again, we're talking about Jabari Smith, all this different stuff. I, I, I would be really interested to see if Tennessee were, were able to get Julian Phillips. I don't know. You know, I don't know right now that they will, but, um, but if he comes here to Tennessee, like, what does he? How, how does how does how does Rick Barnes use him? You know what what like you said with the system that is run here in Knoxville under Barnes, what does that look like for a guy like Julian Phillips who's not he's not huge? I mean, he, you know, body wise, he's he's lankyish. He's six eight two hundred, so that's not like a lot of not a lot of weight on that six eight frame. So how does he how is he used? Is is he? Because I don't you're not going to ask him to bang around down in the post. At least I mean, you could, but I don't think that's going to be what he you know does i haven't watched a whole lot of highlights of him but i just i can't imagine that that's what you know he excels at uh looking at his i guess his write-up here from I mean, this is from 2020 but from jerry meyer says he's a long lanky and athletic is it nba athletic pop to him but again this is from 2020 I, I don't it feels weird reading something from two years ago at this point from may of 2020 so i'm not gonna take that with a whole lot of salt but he is a, a mcdonald's all-american as well um but Gene, that that could be that could help. It wouldn't hurt to get someone like that as a six eight, you know, two hundred pound. I mean, even if he's two hundred pounds, he'll gain some weight. But that wouldn't would definitely it would address some things for Tennessee. It wouldn't be the the kind of like the five that I, I'm talking about Tennessee getting. But a guy like Julian Phillips, I think, would help. I, I don't know that even if you do get him, you, that's not the only move you make in in the post in this offseason, in my opinion. You still got to go get someone from the transfer portal, in my opinion. But uh, getting someone like a Julian Phillips would be a nice little boost and would probably ease the pain a little bit uh, from ball fans if that were to happen. I don't know you know, what his timeline is or anything, but that would probably ease the pain a little bit um, from the sting of this loss. Yeah, and I don't know enough about the kid um, to know exactly if there was like a good player comp. 6'8", 200, screams small four to me. But also look at things from more of an, I guess, a professional perspective as opposed to a college one. Um, I understand that, like it says, like you know, he's listed as a power forward, and who knows? Maybe he's just a finisher. I, I don't know. I just I, I feel like a kid who's only six foot eight, who is listed as a top fifteen player in the country, uh, in the twenty four seven composite, that guy screams to me a pretty skilled guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about the size of a guy like Kerry Blackshear or whatever, I guess, coming out of high school. And and so I, I just have to wonder, man, how, how how does he fit? Like, how can Tennessee sell him on this? Because that's the big question to me. Because, yeah, if Tennessee's going to get involved, everybody else that is involved is telling him, they're going to turn you into a post player. Again, the question is, what does he want to be? Does he want to be Jabari Smith or does he want to be post player? 6'8", you know, I'm not saying that he is Jabari Smith good. I'm talking about the style he wants to play. Is that conducive to is – that, is that conducive to coming to Tennessee? Because if it is, get him. And we'll have to, I guess we'll just have to see from that because I, I I just don't know enough about him to really opine too much more mm-hmm. than what I've heard so far. Yeah, I'm watching some highlights yeah. of him. Um, mostly right now, it's just been a lot of him running the floor and getting some alley oops on transitions. But 
he can run like he he can I mean, as you imagine being six eight two and like he can run he can move um he's not a slow kid at all he's very athletic um but yeah i mean that's the big question like you said that as as what is the selling there and, and you know how does tennessee end up using him I don't know he he he's a very talented kid from the little highlights I'm watching right now. He's he moves well without the ball. He's got a nice jumper. He just nailed a a, a shot right at the top of the key there that I was watching this highlight. So uh, he's got skills. I'd be interested to see what happens with his recruitment. He's gonna I mean he's gonna have I think FSU and USC were two of the other programs that were in his top four before he committed to um, LSU. So I'd be interested to see if those two really get back into it heavily with him as well. And other schools that they come calling. Um, yeah, I, I think he'd be interesting. He, again, he, I mean, he, if nothing else, he adds more skill to that, to the position, which I mean, Tennessee needs it. They need some more high level skill, but I, I don't think you can be done with the post if you, if you get him. Cause I, I also, again, future conversations we'll have in future episodes. What does the roster movement look like with this team? Because you're for sure losing, losing Fulke. He has, he has no more, he can't come back for a seventh year at this point. I mean, Kenny Chandler is gone. There's like a one in, in a million chance he returns for next year. I, I can't imagine he returns. He's he's gone to the NBA or to you know get drafted or or whatever. Who else leaves? Because you're going to have in this day and age, you're going to have a couple transfers. It's just a matter of who and why and whatnot. Because again, just because you're transferring doesn't mean that there's a falling out or that there's all this different stuff. Um, but I, I'm looking at a couple different guys in this roster that you know have the potential to transfer. And I, I was asked on Twitter the other day or actually on the YouTube comments on our, our channel here. Um, and I said, we would address it in a future episode. So we will address it in a future episode. Then someone asked specifically about a couple of players and our thoughts on whether or not they'll be back next season. So we'll, we'll talk about that uh, at a later date in a different episode, but I want to get to the the last one here, Gene, the last topic. Um, Cause I could talk for a long time on this podcast, but I don't want to make it too long. But the last topic you already kind of hinted at it is the whole Rick Barnes thing and Rick Barnes in March. And it's like death and taxes. Rick Barnes getting bounced in the first weekend of March with a talented team. I already saw Dan Wolken had a, you know, strike him while the iron's hot and has a, has a, I had to call him out there. I think his tweet said something about once we, once, once it gets to March, Rick Barnes puts the red nose and tie dye wig on and something basically saying that he becomes a clown in March. So I thought, well, that's nice, Dan. Uh, but I was actually kind of surprised that I didn't see more of it on, on, I mean, maybe it just means I'm not, I'm, I'm following, I'm not following the more negatively skewed crowd. Like I used to back, you know, when I was younger and, and just fresh out of college and stuff. But I, I was surprised. I didn't see more of the Rick Barnes kind of vitriol and stuff or the, you know, oh, just Rick Barnes and March kind of thing. Then, then I did, there were definitely people who did it and there's, certain contingent of, you know, Vol fans who were, you know, the ones doing it like usual. But sometimes, you know, a lot of times you will see more than just that. I didn't see as much. I, I did see people bring it up and say things about it. But to your point, Gene, like you said that what you said earlier, I think resonated with me because it's kind of how I felt too. I don't, I don't, there's not really much that I can point to from that gaming. It's Michigan that I would put at Rick Barnes's feet and say, he is the reason Tennessee lost this game. Because scheme wise, Tennessee did like they had open shots. They they did a lot fine. They adjusted well. I thought, especially in certain certain key situations, that there were some really good adjustments made uh, defensively and stuff for you know scheme wise and stuff for Tennessee. They did what they could with the roster they had at this point. Again, you were playing without Olivia Campbell. I think that would have made a big difference in this game. So 
you've had to adjust without him for the last month, month and a half, however long it's been that he, he has been out for this this point, you know, now with his, his foot injury, ankle injury, whatever it is. But at the same time, like as much as I want to, as much as I do agree, and, and I have said, I've said as much on Twitter when I said I didn't want to argue with people about it. I don't think this is Rick Barnes's fault. And I think if you're, again, if you're playing into the, oh, it's Rick Barnes in March, I think it's just kind of, I think, as you said, Gene, hitting the pinata, like it, you want to take a swing at the low hanging pinata or just kind of grasping at the, the biggest straw to, to pull out there. And I get like, I, he deserves some blame. Like, he absolutely does. You're the head coach of the program that got, that got bounced. Like you deserve blame. And I'm not saying he's blameless at this because there are things he could have done differently in game. There's also things he could, could have done differently in the off season to address roster deeds that, you know, have been an issue all year for Tennessee that were you know magnified in this game. So it goes back to even not just this game. It goes back to what happened in you know, in the summer in in early fall with the roster. But I just I don't I don't think this one's on Barnes. Like I, I just genuinely don't. And I think people who are saying it's Rick Barnes in March, you know, what do you expect? Sometimes it just this just happened. Like you just you just literally went from making fourteen of twenty four threes against Longwood. To two of eighteen, and it wasn't that wasn't just a one game aberration from Tennessee against Longwood. You look what they did to close out the regular season. You look what they did in the SEC tournament. Tennessee was shooting hot from three, like through the last like two or three weeks. It wasn't like they were having inconsistencies and and, and you know had been shooting poorly. Look back all the way to the let's see, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back yeah to the Missouri game on February twenty first, twenty second, excuse me. Tennessee shot fifty percent from three in that game. So that you know, the last loss Tennessee had was against Arkansas in the regular season. Uh, at at Arkansas, they shot seventeen percent from three. After that, fifty percent against Arkansas or against Missouri, excuse me. Thirty eight percent, thirty seven and a half percent against Auburn. Thirty two percent against Georgia. Not your best, but still not bad. Sixty seven percent against Arkansas. Forty two percent against Mississippi State. Forty percent against Kentucky. Forty three percent against Texas A and M, and then fifty eight percent against Longwood. So they were shooting really well from three for a what seven game stretch yeah eight game stretch so in those eight games Tennessee as a team was shooting 46 percent from three in those eight games so there wasn't just like a oh Tennessee you know this just this is what they've been doing they'll have a, a couple of good games and then bad one they've been shooting lights out so it, to have expected this to happen I don't I would not I did not expect this to happen against Michigan I didn't expect them to shoot, you know, maybe 40% from three or anything like that, but I did not, I certainly did not expect the worst shooting game of the season. That's for sure. I just, I, I think it's an easy, sometimes lazy thing to say, oh, it's Rick Barnes. Oh, it, you know, it's Rick Barnes in March. Gene, we've talked about it on this podcast before, looking back and specifically at Tennessee, but even some of his times at Texas, look at the teams that he lost to in those seasons. A lot of times it's ended up being teams that have gone on runs and had made made it to the lead eight, made it to the final four. Uh, you know, last even you know, the I look at last year, uh, Oregon State was an improbable team that made a made a deep run that now all of a sudden this past year just was terrible. But you look back at that one, you look at Purdue. Obviously, they they ended up losing the next game against uh, Virginia in the lead eight, but that was they about beat Virginia. Like that was a really really good Purdue team. Little Chicago made their run, and they're the ones that bounced Tennessee. So, I mean, the I'll be interested to see how far Michigan makes it this year because they're going to play Villanova. They can beat Villanova. I mean, I, I don't know how far Michigan's going to make it, but they're a team that has suddenly seems like they figured th- some things out right at the right time, and they're playing up to their talent level. I just I have a hard time saying this is on Barnes, and that's that that Tennessee is cursed to be a, a bounced in the 
second weekend as long as Rick Barnes is head coach because he's had a lot of issues and he it's fair to say that he has bad luck in March and that you know, maybe that it's less to do with his coaching style, maybe just bad luck of, of some of the draws and stuff. But I also saw a good point online that someone made of, you know, look at where he's coached. He's coached at Texas and Tennessee. He's not had like, he hasn't coached at blue bloods. How many other coaches of non blue blood schools have that can be able to point to, you know, 20, 25 years of, of history and say they've even made a final four or the three elite eights he's made it to, or, or as many sweet 16s he's made it to like how many non blue blood coaches can say that the only one that comes to my mind would be, I mean, Gonzaga's Mark few, I, I guess maybe Villanova. I don't know if you consider Villanova a blue blood or not, but I mean, those are two of the only ones I can think of that have consistently been able to make deep tournament runs that aren't at a traditional, you know, Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, North Carolina. So, UCLA, I guess, is a, is a traditional blue blood. They haven't been, you know, lately, but they are historically a blue blood. Louisville, I guess, you also can throw them in there, too. It's a long-winded way of me saying, Gene, that, to go back to what you said earlier, I, Barnes deserves blame, but it just feels like the lazy answer to me to say, oh, that's Barnes in March. I don't know what you're expecting, because this didn't feel like it was Barnes's fault that Tennessee lost this game. It, it really, truly did not to me. There, there are things that he... You know, could have done better in the game, but a lot of it was execution. A lot of it was also, I mean, it is what it is. John Howard is a darn good coach. Like he, he just is. I, I wasn't super sold on him, you know, with this year specifically, but he's still a pretty darn good coach. And that team made, and that coaching staff made really good decisions and really good of of observations on how to stop Tennessee's offense from doing what they wanted to do, and how to attack Tennessee's defense in a way that Tennessee's defense hasn't really been attacked much of the season. A lot of that, again, has to do with the fact they had three big men and three really talented big men. And I don't think Tennessee's faced a team that has had that much high quality talent in the post all year. Not even Auburn or, or, or Kentucky had that much high quality talent depth wise in the post, like, um, like Michigan does. But I just, I don't, I'm not throwing this at Barnes's feet. I'm really not. I, I, I just don't, I don't think it is. I don't think you can do that in this game. Particularly, I, I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Right. Well, and and look, I, I understand that you know the totality of his career suggests that you know can't uh, you can't do this, you can't do that. But uh, look, is it? I, I don't know. Is it more impressive? And look, I, maybe this is hypothetical. Maybe this is rhetorical. I, I don't know, but. Is it more impressive that Bruce Pearl went to a national what final right or was it the final? He, four? he made the final four, yeah. And an elite like it, like the goal is a national championship. So my I guess my question is: Is it are, are we propping certain coaches up? At, because they make a Final Four or an Elite Eight or whatever the case may be, or because, if we're being honest, if that's the criteria, Pearl's resume is no different than, than Barnes. If we're being honest, if we're being... like if we're, if we're trying to be fair in this regard, because Pearl's been to one Final Four, one Elite Eight. Mm-hmm. Barnes has been to at what at well, least one final four. So te- technically, two lead eights for Pearl, but yes, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, 
Well, his season ended in the Final Four once, and in right. the Elite Eight once. Or are you saying he he got beat in the Elite Eight twice? No, I, I would say like I mean, technically, like you said, to get to the Final Four, you had to get to the. Oh elite, no, elite no, eight, so well, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, but no, I'm just saying his season ended in the Final Four once, Elite Eight once. Yep. Okay. Um, which is the same criteria as Rick Barnes. Um, I mean, I don't want to do the thing where we prop up a guy. Like, look, you don't. I mean, Barnes is, does Barnes have Mark Few's resume? No, hmm. but I, I, although I would probably, and look, I'm, I've never thought the day would come that I would turn into a Rick Barnes apologist, but here we are. <laughs> uh, but like, I would, you know, I, to be put in a situation where you can go twenty nine and four every regular season. I'm sorry, go twenty eight and three every regular season, and you know, just simply say that you're scheduling tough in your non conference, and that matter. Um, whereas Barnes has played in two difficult conferences that at one point or another, while he's been coaching there, has been labeled the best conference in the country. Yep. Some yep. have suggested the SEC is now. There was obviously a time with Kansas and the Big 12 that he was you know, that the Big 12 was considered that. And Kansas State had runs. Uh, Oklahoma felt like had runs. I mean, Blake Griffin was really good there. Uh, Baylor, you know, since Barnes left, but like that league is in West Virginia, like that league has had quality basketball for a long time. But uh, like, I guess, look, I don't want to do the thing where if what Barnes is doing is so much different, um, is. It's Bayham's record. I guess Bayham gets a pass because he's got a chip, because he got a generational player who was one who had one of the greatest freshman seasons we've ever seen, quite possibly the greatest freshman season we've ever seen, um, and because of obviously the accomplishments that come along with it with Carmelo in 2003. I know you can throw all these names at me, whatever here that whatever. I mean, people listening to the podcast can throw this name or that name, but. Carmelo goes in, has an amazing freshman season, and they win a national championship, and he's the most outstanding player. Um, and that's how Bayham gets his one ring. Like, that's – I just feel like – and look at Bayham's career outside of that. I guess he – you know, he's had ultimately more success, but gap ain't that much different is all I'm saying. Um at the end of the day, te- uh, Texas is Rick Barnes. Yeah, because they're still trying. They're still chasing Rick Barnes. Think about that. Like Texas is still chasing Rick Barnes' successor. They're on Beard now. Shaka didn't work. Um, they're on their second successor. Look at what they were before him. So, I mean, are you a victim of your own success? Probably so. Um, the fact of the matter is, like when we're looking at all this March stuff, and then look, I'm look, I'm a totality of the season person. Mm-hmm. I don't just tune in. Obviously, the thing you don't either. I don't just simply tune in to college basketball in March and say, "Well, that guy's not winning in March, so therefore, uh, he sucks." So y'all can miss me personally with that. And I look, I look, I he this dude has coached at two football schools. Where they don't really care. I'm sorry, with apologies to the, fan, the majority of the Tennessee fan base, but you support Orange. You don't support basketball. That's the same thing. 
So therefore, you're only going to tune in when A, they're playing Kentucky, or B, they're playing in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, you know, and I think, that's, I think that's the truth for, like you said, a lot of them. I think people who listen to this podcast, a lot of people who listen to this one are, are more diehard basketball fans because it's, it's just as a basketball specific podcast. Right. So, yeah, I, I, but I agree right. with you. I think that's my, my experience even on Twitter is that a lot of people don't tune in to basketball until football season is fully well with over with. And that includes like national signing. Like I, there, there were some people I saw on Twitter back in December saying, I, I'm not going to care. I'm not going to tune in really until this team gets into SEC play or until we get into until football is over. Like I, I legit saw people tweet that. And I, like you said, there's nothing wrong with it really. It just that's, if that's how you're yeah. a fan, it's fine. But yeah, I, I get, I get what you're saying on that, be, that front. That's just, yeah. Let's be clear on that. Like there's nothing wrong. I'm not here to judge how people go about their viewing habits. Heck, I'm about to go, you know, I finally have a little bit of free time for the first time since September, it feels like, and I'm going to sit down and watch some bad television. That probably is not basketball for a little bit. <laughs> um, but um, so again, I'm not judging people's habits, but it just hits a little differently when you've got people, the, the criticisms are not coming from the people who were there all, all year long. And it's coming from people who flow in there, spend three days celebrating on Twitter when they, you know, they, there are more people celebrating the win over Kentucky than we're celebrating the SEC championship because to them, the Kentucky win is the one that matters. Like it's the first time in forty years, right? Forty two years since they won a forty three years since they won an like that matters. Like three years ago, I was being told that you know the season was irrelevant because we didn't you know we do, well, quote unquote we don't have any hardware. We're number one in the country for a month. We don't have any hardware. Didn't win the regular season championship. Didn't win the tournament championship. Got beaten in the NCAA tournament. But like three years later. You're beating Kentucky, you know, beating A&M, winning an SEC championship. And instead of celebrating the championship, you're mad because of the seed. I'm like, at some point, basketball seasons are long, man. They're long. Like, if we're being honest, this stuff starts in, like, June and July when these, these kids are grinding in the gym. Sometimes hot gym. Although Pratt Pavilion is amazing. Um yeah, that's when these guys are in here. Like they don't get time off. Like, I mean, uh, it, it may. I mean, there's shirts that say basketball never stops. Yep. There's some legitimacy to that. They're going to be look, man. A guy like Vescovy, he's going to be in, if he, if he's not in the gym today, as we're recording, he'll be in there tomorrow because he hadn't forgotten that. And basketball is a sport that you can constantly work on your craft. Football, you can. Most sports, you can. But you can all be man. You don't think the guy Ziegler, doing that kid's story, won't be in the gym tomorrow? Like you don't get the breaks. But like the unfortunate thing is, not the people that listen, but a vast majority of the people that really support Tennessee, they don't care about that. You know, like those November games that I say don't really necessarily matter. They do matter, but they're not what you're going to be judged on. But I'm judging you on those Power 5 non-conference games. I'm judging you on the 18 SEC regular season games. I'm judging you on everything that transpires in March. And what that told me is they went, what, 14-4 and in the SEC this year? Is that right? Yep. 14-4 and in the SEC. 
won the SEC tournament. Came one half, one bad half, and against an unfortunate draw, Michigan-Tennessee should not be a second-round game. But here we are. Yep. You know, that's, that Michigan team, fair or foul, right or wrong, people can point to whoever they want to, that Michigan team has top 10 talent in the country. They struggled throughout the course of the regular season. They had, obviously, the bad blow-up in the um, – Juwan Howard had the bad blow-up in the mm. at the end of the Wisconsin game. Yep. Um, and, you know, they kind of have galvanized. You know, they, they've banded together here recently, and they're winning some games. And they've got a really good player who's almost unstop- an unstoppable force, especially when the team they're going up against has nothing anywhere near that. Uh, and you can't simulate that in the SEC play because all of the SEC bigs are just athletic freaks. Uh, like that's what they are. I mean, they're, you know, even and that's. I mean, like Walker Kessler is a freak. Uh, Jabari Smith, we know, is a freak. Just look at the bigs around the SEC that are really quality. There's not one that presents the sort of style of play that Hunter Dickerson plays. But he has a chance to eat you up outside. And, okay, you won't leave me open. I'll knock down a three or two. Um, there isn't a comp for that. And so, like, that, it's unfortunate that's kind of how the draw went. Um, kind of maybe hope that Michigan had lost that first-round game. I don't even I remember they yep. played now. Colorado State. I wish they had lost that game, too. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? So, I, yeah, are the issues... You know, I think I don't know what their seed was, maybe sixty or whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't know what. No, I guess there was somewhere between forty, forty-one and forty-four on the seed list. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, like that's that's an unfortunate draw. That was a team that at one point was ranked number six in the country. <laughs> that's yeah. the team that you drew in the second round. Uh, like that's that's the reality of March. You got to beat them at some point. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been any different if you had lost to them in the Elite Eight. Yeah. If you had played them in the Elite Eight. You know, like that's still it's still the same. It's still the same game. It's just unfortunate this was a second round game. Uh, these things happen all the time. I mean, see that Kentucky Wichita State game about eight nine years ago. That should not have been a second round game because it was a stupid Kentucky team that was horrible in the regular season and a Wichita State team that I'm pretty sure was undefeated at the time. Um, you know, these things, you know, miss, you know, miss seeds sort of happen. It's not, I'm not knocking the process. I'm not knocking the committee. I'm saying that you have teams that don't live up to expectations or whatever the case may be throughout the course of the regular season. And then all of a sudden they maybe turn things on, get a bad seed, and then here, here they are playing in the final, I mean, the Elite Eight, uh, you know, or whatever. And Michigan get Michigan, Michigan being an 11 seed is a headache for a lot of people. Colorado State deserves better than having met one of the best regular seasons in its history and drawing Michigan in the first round. Tennessee has one of uh, come, has its first SEC championship in 43 years, and as and as a reward for that, it's a three seed and gets Michigan in the freaking second round. Uh, yeah. And, and like some of it's 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 unfortunate. It's March, as John Rothstein would say. Um, it's 
it's the way it's going to go. And when we when we turn this into a um, when we turn this into a ratings thing, then that's kind of what you're going to get because I don't know ratings, whatever. But I'm pretty sure that Michigan Tennessee is the sort of game that draws great viewership. And we've made March Madness, we've made basketball season about three weeks. Um, and whittle a 30-something, 31-game regular season and three to five games in a a conference tournament, none of that stuff matters. Um, The Chattanooga loses, Chattanooga's shooter, that shot goes to a little bit to the right or the left, and a team that won the regular season by two games is sitting at home playing in the NIT, um, even though they were the best team over a 30-something game. Um, and that's that's unfortunate. Like, you have so many situations. Like, you know, Murray State's in the tournament. Belmont has a great regular season. is a top 60 team in terms of all the metrics, and because they can't beat Moorhead State, they, they're at home. Uh, Tennessee gets a three seed because of some obligatory sort of measurement that I'm not even 100% sure about because I didn't have time to really listen and absorb all of the different things that were said last Sunday um, as it pertained to Tennessee getting a three seed. I just know that nobody uh, and nobody that supports Tennessee is very fond of Joe Lenardi because he basically just regurgitated what the committee told him. Uh, sit him out there to say as a meat shield um, as to why that they were not going to move Tennessee above a three seed. Uh, and... And I hate that, um, but you know, like I said that's when we make things a made-for-TV sort of thing. Then we have to drop, we have to drum up suspense, and this is what you get: you get second-round matchups that are obviously competitive, but unfortunate because they probably shouldn't be played when they were. But hey, you got to win in March, and last night Tennessee did. I'm going to end the, the show on this because you brought it up and I thought it was a, an interesting point that I wanted to look at comparing kind of the resumes of Pearl and Barnes and, you know, just, just looking at March. So I think it's only fair to kind of look at what Pearl did at, at in Division One because, you know, before he got the job at uh, Milwaukee, he was at Southern Indiana and they were in Division Two, and he, you know, led him to actually Division Two National Championship in, like, in 1995. So, like, he had a lot of success in Division Two with the Screaming Eagles of Southern Indiana, but I'm not going to count that. I'm going to look at once he jumped to Division One uh, in the Horizon League with Milwaukee. So that was the 2001-2002 season. Just looking at the last 20 years with with that, um, from his start at Milwaukee to where he is again. Auburn, as we're recording this, Auburn's still in the NCAA tournament. Who knows how far they go? They are trailing Miami right now, but you know we'll see if they lose or not but they, they could get to you know they're at least in the second round right now they could get to another sweet 16 here we'll see but as of right now looking at just you know what it is currently um pearl has had three seasons end in the regular in the sweet 16 of, of the last 20 years three seasons into the sweet 16 one in the elite eight and one in the final four and yes granted he had you know three years off between tennessee and auburn but it was his own fault. He left Tennessee. Well, he didn't he leave Tennessee. He got fired. He, he left Tennessee in disgrace. And then, heck, even last year, Auburn was ineligible because of, I mean, they weren't a good team, but they're ineligible also because of stuff that happened with Pearl. So, I mean, you ain't really technical. I mean, he could have had more success and, and whatnot. He was able to stay at Tennessee, but he's also gotten himself 
in hot water multiple times now. So you can throw that in there too, but whatever. I'm just, just looking at the facts in the last 20 years, three, three seasons end in a sweet 16 run, one in lead eight, one in a final four over that same span. Barnes has also had three seasons end in a sweet 16. Actually was it? Yeah. Three seasons end in a sweet 16, two end in elite eight and one in a final four. That ain't much different. Like you said, like that's one elite eight. That's different. And so technically, if you want to get really technical, Barnes has a better one because he has one more elite eight, but also he coached for a few more years because he didn't get kicked out of coaching with a show cause because he didn't get in trouble. But I mean, you're right, Gene, like that's not, it's not drastically different. Um, looking at their overall NCAA tournament records is, is interesting too. Barnes has a losing one. <laughs> He's 25 and 26 in the tournament. And whereas Pearl is 15 and 10, that's still not like a, you know, Pearl's is still not a, an incredible NCAA tournament record. So I, I think people get so hung up on Pearl because he got Tennessee to their first ever and, and still so far only ever elite eight. But they also forget that Tennessee got ba- his first year. They got bounced in the second round when they probably shouldn't have in his fourth year. They got bounced in the, uh, first round when they probably shouldn't have. And as last year, they got run out of the gymnasium by Michigan in the first round because of all the stuff that would happen. You know, that team had basically given up and all the stuff that going on there. So people, I think, kind of gloss over and kind of forget some of the bad that were with the good. He also never, I mean, Pearl never really had success in the SEC tournament. He got to the finals once, um, what, in 2008 or nine? I forget which, what year it was. They got to the, the finals there in, in, the NC, or in the SEC tournament. But other than that, I mean, they were a lot of times one or two and done in the SEC tournament under Pearl uh, for my recollection. Whereas with Barnes, Tennessee's made the finals three times and they won the whole darn thing this year. So I, we're, it's, it's, it's not apples to apples comparison because again, they're, you know, obviously different situations. Um, if you're comparing just to 2001 to now Pearl was there, was at Milwaukee for four years and, you know, so in a smaller school in the horizon league. So that's a little different, um, and again, Pearl was out of coaching for three years because of, of his own fault, but still out of coaching for three years, but both guys took over pretty big rebuilds at their programs that they are currently at Auburn and Tennessee and both took over right around the same time. Uh, Pearl got back into it, you know, a year before Barnes got into at Tennessee, but you know, both guys were taking over rebuilds and both guys, uh, in the 17, 18 season, you know, got to the NCAA tournament and, and those years both actually got bounced in the second round in both those years too. But to your point, Gene, like it's not like there's a, a massive difference between Barnes and Pearl um, with their postseason success. Again, that could change with with this year. But we'll see how far Auburn goes in the NCAA tournament. Now, um, I'm going to look at the score before we record before we end the recording here because I'm curious. It was again Miami with a very very slight lead at halftime, but even still, like it's not like unless he goes to another Final Four, like it, it's not going to be a, a massive massive difference between what Pearl has done and what. Barnes is done. And right now Miami's up by six over Auburn. I don't know if that'll hold. It's early in the second half, but we'll see. But Gene, I appreciate you kind of let me ramble a lot here in this episode, which I thought you also made some good points. So I'd appreciate you uh, being a, a good sounding board and being someone who, you know, consistently this year, um, this past year that we've done this. And it's actually, it almost will be a year here very soon where we rebranded as a Tennessee only podcast to talk about you know, just about Tennessee women's and women's basketball. I appreciate you in the last year, like bringing the perspective you bring as a former player, as a, as a, you know, high school, like an AAU level coach and and whatnot. So before we end, uh, I want to say thank you, Gene, for the last year and everything you've done. I'm not saying thank you as if like we're going off the air or whatever, because we have plenty more to talk about in the coming weeks. And I'll still definitely have some more Lady Vols podcasts because they're in the tournament still. 
But I do want to say thanks, Gene, because I've appreciated your uh, perspective throughout the year. You've helped me kind of have a different viewpoint on a lot of things with basketball and a different appreciation for a lot of different things that I don't know if I ever would have if I hadn't had this podcast with you. So I just want to say thanks before we end the show here. I appreciate that, man. I just, uh, balls fans, I don't I always say I don't hate y'all. I just want to provide a different perspective. I mean, like it, there's, uh, a lot of times you'll probably like, what I say, because I try to be fair. Uh, sometimes you won't like what I say because I try to be fair. But I, I always feel like, and I think the reason why I appreciate you know, the ability to do this podcast is because uh, there are times where you want to kind of be nuanced in what you're saying and not just go hot takey. And you know, I don't think it, not everything is about you know recruiting, or not everything is about this one specific aspect that we. I think you're just talking about the games. And I think, the, you know, just being able to kind of discuss and talk about games and trends and things. I mean, like if, if you listen to this podcast, we've been talking about what would happen, what would cause Tennessee to not win. So it ultimately happened. It's unfortunate. Um, but here we are. And um, like at Dow, you know, Barnes has the challenge of trying to put, put this thing together for next season however he can, but I, I just feel like Tennessee has a guy who who wins. Like, did he, did he go as far as you wanted in the NCAA tournament? No, but he went, got you, brought you further than you had in the SEC tournament in my lifetime, like literally in my lifetime. Nathaniel's lifetime and a lot of people's lifetime. They've never seen Tennessee win an SEC championship in basketball. So while we're, you know, pointing out all those negatives, you can't simply forget that because it doesn't meet a sort of narrative that is pushed by uh, media members outside of Knoxville or wherever we're talking about. Well, this podcast has gone long, but I knew it would. Uh, it could have gone even longer, but I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> end it here. Uh, I want to thank all of you for, for tuning into this episode and tuning in all season. Again, we're moving into off-season mode for the men's team. Hopefully, Lady Balls will, will give us another week or so here of postseason talk we'll have lady ball podcasts as well and gene and i'll talk about lady balls because we have before we will again but we do have a lady ball specific podcast now too so that's where a lot of it will happen but gene and i will talk about it too but again thank you all of you all for for listening along watching along wherever you are youtube or apple Podcasts or spotify or wherever so just want to say thank you all of you we'll be back again probably sometime maybe later on this week maybe next week again to again to kind of talk about off-season stuff because it's it's the off-season time in tennessee so Iraq, where we started all, you know, a year ago, Gene, where we're, we started this podcast, rebranded Tennessee podcast, at right, not shortly, no, not long after they got bounced in the first round against Oregon State last year. So we're, what comes around goes around. We're back to where we began. So anyway, thank you all so much for tuning in. I'm Nathaniel signing off for Gene. This has been another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss a new episode. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for more video content and follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Thank you, Vol fans.